And this morning we'll continue our series called The Spirit of the Church, which we, of course, have been uh, working through the last couple of weeks. As we enter into our 20th year anniversary, we wanted to once again revisit some of the key principles that this church was uh, founded upon, them deriving from the second chapter of Acts. And uh, as we've been looking through the this incredible chapter and seeing the church come into existence for the very first time, we've been drawing some high-level principles from the text of the actual event recorded for us here in the scriptures. And as we've been working through it, the very first thing we discovered in verses uh, 1 through 4 is that we needed to be a spirit-led church. And we articulated and outlined that for you when we looked at that. Then we understood that the early church was immediately thrust into contact with the culture of that time. Secondly, we needed to be a church that engages the culture, that interacts with the culture around us. And as we got to the third section, as we have seen the Holy Spirit come upon the church, as we've seen the crowds gathering around that place after hearing the event of the arrival of the Holy Spirit and also the effects of it with the individuals, the disciples speaking in tongues of many different regions of the area. They now gather, they're asking the question, what does this all mean? Peter then launches into an explanation. And in that explanation, we found our third principle for the church, that we needed to be an evangelizing church. We needed to be a church that took the gospel outside the four walls of our building. And therefore, we are learning from this incredible sermon how to share our faith. Learning what Peter said and what components that he included and how he went about it and so forth. Learning how we then may share our faith more effectively with those who do not know. The very first thing that Peter does and we discovered was paint the big picture by answering the question to those asking, by what does this mean? by giving an authoritative scriptural basis for the event that has just taken place, by saying in verse 16, this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. Meaning the coming of the Spirit and the effects of the coming of the Spirit and what they are witnessing and what they are watching and hearing for themselves, this is it. This is what Joel predicted. The second portion of his evangelistic sermon is what we are going to be looking at today. And if the first portion is painting the big picture as he did, giving them context for what he is about to say next, which we explained last week, I think is an important part of our evangelism. Today he gets right to the heart of the matter. If you notice with me in verse 21, he left them with a cliffhanger. At this point, the Greek could have said, stay tuned next week, same bat time, same bat channel. Because he was about to answer a question that he left them with. And that was, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's provoking within his listeners, hoping that it would cause them to ask the question, Who is the Lord and what is his name? Which he immediately answers in this next section. That I entitle the message of evangelism, by no other name. 
We can paint the big picture all we want, but if we don't get to the main point of of our evangelistic conversation, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, we are going to fail miserably in our endeavors. Because by no other name under heaven can anyone be saved than that of Jesus himself. And so watching Peter bring these individuals to that point, asking what is the name of the Lord that we may call upon him and be saved, the Spirit beautifully articulating this and architecting this for us, bringing him to that point, it's now time to introduce Jesus. And today we're going to see how Peter does it. He does it in a very, very specific manner, a very direct manner. And in it, we see the two necessary components of talking about Jesus Christ that must be shared with the one that we are sharing the gospel with if they are going to uh, respond to the gospel properly, fully knowing what they're responding to. So as we look, let's begin in verse 22. As he is waiting there, and he is there on top of the roof probably, and the people gathered around the home, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosening him from the uh, pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Haiti. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died, was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn by with him an oath to him that he would set one on his one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And we'll stop there. Now he introduces the main thing. This is what he's getting to. What name shall we call upon to be saved? The name of Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting to. But it's an apologetic sermon. If you look at it, it's in its entirety. He needs to get over a preconceived misunderstanding about the Messiah that is in every Jewish mind that is there in front of him. If Jesus was the Messiah, please explain to me this whole crucifixion and death that we have just witnessed and watched. As, he re- as we read there in our text, he's speaking to people that were fully aware of what had just happened concerning this person, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And by calling him that, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It is a a city of obscurity. Even Josephus says that Nazareth was so small and insignificant, nobody really would even consider it yet, but uh, Peter introduces it as Jesus of Nazareth. It's being very specific. He is telling these people very clearly as they wrote this individual off because of his mere uh, acquaintance with Nazareth, as the one said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Peter's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and you killed, God has raised up. And it's by his name that you shall be saved. But he has to get over this misconception. A misconception that had been developed in the minds and the hearts of the people for over 400 years between the time of Malachi and Matthew a time where the religious leaders of the day would look back into the Old Testament prophecies and try to understand what seemed to be a contradiction concerning the Messiah's coming. In some places of the Old Testament, it looked like the Messiah was going to be a suffering servant. In other places in the Old Testament, it looked like he was going to be a conquering hero. And both of these together did not make sense. Some Jewish leaders at that time believed that there was going to be two Messiahs coming. But what they didn't get that they didn't understand is that there were going to be two comings of the same Messiah. And so Peter is completely aware of the fact that he needs to get past this misunderstanding of the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection in the people's minds. How could this be our Messiah if he died? This doesn't fit our profile. It doesn't fit our preconceived understandings of who Jesus should be or the Messiah should be more specifically. But then he said something here that we'll talk about in just a moment, that this was God's plan from the beginning. And yet, even though it was God's plan from the beginning, with clear intent, he holds them accountable for the action. God's sovereignty, once again, in paradoxical form with man's responsibility. And it's incredible to see it. And this is one of the places we see it most clearly. Because Peter holds them accountable. He begins by saying this in verse 22. Men of Israel, these are Jewish men in whom he is speaking to. Men of Israel would then give us the insight that they would think as Jewish people thought. And therefore, the misunderstandings and the misconceptions were there amongst them. He's asking them directly and in a command. This is an imperative in the Greek. Hear these words. It means to hear, believe, and respond to. It wasn't just hearing it was sufficient. You need to believe this, and then you need to respond to it. It wasn't sufficient just to hear it. You needed to act upon what I'm about to tell you. This Jesus of Nazareth, calling him a man, again, one of the misconceptions is the fact that how could it be possible for the Messiah to be 100% man and 100% God? Today, we have no problem calling Jesus a mere man. When we assign deity to him is where the conversation becomes more complex. Back then, they didn't have as much problem with the aspect of deity. They had more problem with the aspect of humanity. So he calls them a man completely attested by God. 
The term attested means proclaimed. It means demonstrated to. It means that he, God the Father, showed himself to be real. That is Jesus as his son. And he goes on then to say how this man might be known to be exactly who he was through the mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him. I like the way Warren Worsby enters into this portion. I'd like to read this to you, if I may. News travels fast in the East, he writes, and probably the most of the adults in Jerusalem and residents and visitors knew about the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. They also heard rumors and of official announcement that his followers had stolen the body of Jesus just to make the people think that he kept his word and had been raised from the dead. But Peter told them the truth. Jesus of Nazareth had indeed been raised from the dead, and the resurrection proves that he is the Messiah. Peter gave them four proofs of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and then he called on them to believe on Christ and be saved. What an introduction to this. The misconception being replaced by the reality of the truth. And he says here very clearly, he was attested to you by mighty works. This is the manner in which he was exhibited to them. The mighty works means miracles that he rendered from the feeding of the 5,000 to the healing of the sick. The term wonders there means the uh, heavenly wonders that proclaimed his arrival. And what was that? The star that proclaimed his birth to the entire world. The signs that were rendered. These were miracles that had great meaning assigned to them. And one specifically would be the transfiguration of Jesus at that moment where he shows himself to the people his followers, James, John, and uh, Peter at that time, exactly who he is. So moved by the event, we see that James, John, and Peter didn't want to leave that particular moment with God. This is the manner in which God attested to you the mighty wonder, uh, the mighty works of him done through you amongst your midst, that you, look at this, what he says here in the end of verse 22, as you yourself know. He's dealing with an audience that was there real time. This wasn't new news to them. They had heard about it undoubtedly. This is only a short period of time after the the crucifixion and resurrection. You know, 50 some days later. This was all in their memory. This was all in their heart. This just happened, the the, uh, preceding Passover. So they remember it. And now Peter is bringing it to clarity, showing to them exactly who Jesus is. But again, even with that perspective, that nobody appears to challenge him on. Luke doesn't give us any indication that they responded and said, he never did those miracles. We don't know of those wonders. We never saw those signs. There's no indication of that at all. Peter fully confident that they knew about each and every one of these events, and yet he still needed to overcome that misconception that was driving them away from God, and he does so in verse 23. This Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is what Jesus was assigned to. This was his particular task and function. This was what he was appointed to. This is what he was designated to do and so forth. This is what he needed to do. And it was a thought-out plan. The word plan there in the Greek is something that has been clearly thought through and thought out. If God was going to create man and all that comes with it, uh, then he knew beforehand that man would fall. And therefore he knew that they would need a Savior to return to him, all orchestrated before the foundations of the world and attested to and submitted to by Christ, the eternal Son, that he was willing to do this on behalf of creation, come and die for us. By the foreknowledge of God. God knew, the Father knew, that this would be of necessity before creation ever began. And you'd think at that moment, then, well, how can you hold us guilty for crucifying him and rejecting him? And look at what he says next. This Jesus, delivered up according to the uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. The guilt is on you. The responsibility is on you. That's what he's saying here. This is the point now where he is bringing them into reality with their sin. You rejected the Messiah that who has been sent to you. You rejected him. This was no accident that he died. It was clear from the beginning that the crucifixion was a set plan and purpose of God, but you killed him. And as Temper Longnecker says, there's no other place in Scripture where this paradox between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and human freedom are more well aptly displayed for us than right here. Man was guilty and held guilty for their rejection. Their Messiah, they are now learning that they themselves gave over to lawless men, the Romans, to be crucified. How would you like that hung around your neck? I mean, this is a weighty concern. Something that needed, and we will discover, pierces their heart. And they understand now that they are in a dire place before a holy God. If we are going to be effective in our evangelism, we must tell people the bad news before we tell them the good news. We must bring them to a place that they understand that they have sinned before a holy God. The good news isn't going to even mirror how great it is unless we at first bring people to the reality of their sin. And that's becoming more and more difficult to do, isn't it? People feel extremely justified in their wrong behavior. Either they're comparing themselves to others who are far worse than them. I get this all the time. I'm really not that bad. I'm not nearly as bad as Hitler. I'm not nearly as bad as John Wayne Gacy or Dahmer. Uh, Of course, God's going to have mercy on me because I'm not nearly as bad as them. Don't you love how they pick those people? 
They never pick Billy Graham. They never, you know, pick Jesus, of course. They always pick those people to compare themselves to. And I'm glad and somewhat comforted that at the moment I know they're not as bad as Hitler or Dahmer. But still, it shows how disconnected they are from the reality of how sinful they are before a holy God. Anytime you doubt the depravity of man, let us remember what Christ needed to endure to overcome the depravity of man. The 39 lashes, being nailed to a cross. When we see that depicted before us, either in the Gospels themselves, or if you're a more visual person, remember the passion of the Christ. This is what Christ needed to suffer to overcome the sin of man. I ask you then, how serious is the sin of man before God? whom you crucified by the hands of lawless man. But look at verse 24. The bad news has been given. The picture has been painted of backdrop. The bad news has been introduced. And now the good news is given. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He could not remain in the grave because Jesus died sinlessly. For the wages of sin brings about death. So the death that he experienced, literal death, let's be clear on that, was not for himself. He had never sinned. He was perfect from the time of his birth to the time of his death. There was no sin found in him whatsoever. And so therefore, death could not hold him. It was impossible to do so. As William MacDonald writes, there are two reasons for this, that death could not hold him prisoner because, number one, the character of God demanded his resurrection. He had died the sinless for the sinful, God must raise him as proof of his complete satisfaction with the redemptive work of Christ. And number two, the prophecies of the Old Testament demanded his resurrection. And this is the particular point in which Peter now presents to us next as he brings us to the Psalms, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Death could not hold him because he was perfect, because he was sinless. He did not die for himself. He died for us. As a result, the Old Testament prophecies must be fulfilled concerning the resurrection. Here he brings them to the psalm, and he says, For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwelled in hope. Verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make full, make me full of gladness with your presence. And in verse 27, the reality was, who is David speaking of? Now the Jewish mindset equated that to David, which Peter will then refute in just a moment by saying David is still dead, he is still buried, and he has still seen corruption. So who is this one? 
whose soul has not been abandoned to Hades. Now, Hades, the word there might kind of startle you at first. He is quoting the Psalms from the Greek version, which is called the Subtuagent. And the word Hades was used there in substitute for the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol was the place of the grave, the underworld in which the Jewish mind saw the body returning to. So in the actual psalm, you'll read the word Sheol, but in actuality, the Greek word for that is Haiti. And in both cases, he is saying, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave, to the underworld, but nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That, is, that means bodily decay. It means one who is withering away because he has been in the grave so long and now simply his skeletons remain. And so Peter now draws once again from the Old Testament to bring scriptural authority into the Jewish minds of the listeners in which he's speaking to, posing the question, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is saying before them, who then is this one that David speaks of? And let us read in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that is David, that he would set one on his descendants, one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Now the good news. He is getting to the point now where he is saying that the crucifixion was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He did not die for himself. He died for the sins of the world. His death allowed him, therefore, the position and placement for the resurrection. The resurrection gives us the totality of the experience claiming, proving, and demonstrating to all that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient for the sins of the world. He has them exactly where he wants them. The Spirit has architected this beautifully. And as a result, he has now given them the good news, but though you crucified him and the ultimate sin hangs on your neck, God raised him from the dead. And now... As we will see next week, he brings it to conclusion and he shows them how they can be saved by showing that the risen Christ is alive. I wish we as believers here today would embrace in our hearts the reality of the risen living Christ. Our God is a living God. He is not dead He is not distant. He is not unaware. He is not hiding. He is not far from you. He is with you always and will never leave you nor forsake you. He is a living God that you may call upon at any time 
And we as Christians sometimes walk in this light that that he's still in the grave, that he's dead. No, we live because he lives. And as a result, we should show that to the entire world in those things that we do and say and so forth, that we serve a living God. So when we introduce Jesus in our evangelism, which we must do, this is a necessity. We must present him in twofold light, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of this way. No, this is better for you. Death and resurrection. I'm always looking at it from my point of view. Death and resurrection. If we're going to share Christ properly, we must talk about each component of that experience. Why? Because his death speaks to our sin, right? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is one of the most reliable facts that we have about Jesus Christ and evidence of therefore. So when we talk about the crucifixion of Christ, they have a hard time getting past that because we have so much evidence concerning that. Physical evidence. But then when they ask the question, why? Or you then, if they don't ask the question, why, introduce it. Why did Jesus have to die? Get them thinking. Let the Spirit start working on their heart. He didn't die for himself. Show them a few verses that speak of his sinlessness. Why did he die? He died because of our sin. He hung on that cross because of our sin. He was paying for our sin. And then you get into the whole issue of the bad news. And once you bring them to that place and you see it on their face often as you're witnessing and you're doing it in the power of the Spirit, they start to hang low. They start to look down. They won't look at you. The conviction of the Spirit is upon their heart. And you wait and you look for that. And then you, bam, here comes the good news. I have lived in a condo now for 22 years. And for about 15 of those 22 years, religiously, like clockwork, we get a solicitor calling us, leaving messages at 8 in the morning, sometimes calling us 8 at night on Sunday nights. We've tried to have him stop, but it's just very persistent. He continues to call us and ask us if we want aluminum siding for our house. I live in a brick condominium building. I have no control over that. I've told him that 15 times, and he continues to call me. I have no need for the siding that you're offering, but we've got great deals. That's wonderful. But I have no need for the siding, but we've got so many wonderful colors. That's wonderful. But I have no need for your siding. But we have it, it'll protect your house forever, even through Armageddon. I don't care. I have no need for your siding. So often, we are like that siding salesman with people with the gospel. We just want to run to the good news and they have no context and they're like, I don't even need the good news. The good news isn't that great because I don't think I'm a sinner. That's why you must, in your prayer time, ask God to bring them to the reality of their sin before him and then you just share that and remind them of that sin, remind them of the death of Jesus Christ and therefore the resurrection seems so spectacular, then you can really say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, that a sinner like me could be saved in Christ. When Paul wrote about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he said it this way. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, 
which you received in which you stand currently, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of the first importance that I also received, number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is using this exact same method with the Corinthians that we are encouraging you today. It's effective. It works. This is the way God designed it. He'll do the rest. Just be faithful. Now, many people feel discouraged in their evangelism because they've been rejected so many times. And they walk away and feel as if they're ineffective and maybe they should just cease from the endeavor altogether. But effective evangelism is not necessarily uh, defined by positive results. That's the work of God. You may be planting a seed. You may be watering a seed. Or you may be the person that is being part of reaping the harvest of the seed that was planted and watered before you even got there by someone else. No, effective evangelism is defined by faithful proclamation. Keep sharing it. It's too good to keep to yourself. This is the best news anyone could ever hear. And aren't you so grateful and thankful that someone took the risk and opportunity with you to share the gospel with you? Your whole life has been changed. Has anyone had an opportunity this week to share the gospel? You don't have to raise your hand, but if you have, we want to encourage you and pray for you. But I was out with Jay for lunch, who, by the way, even after giving a cake, is back today. I mean, that was an awesome cake. And that cake now has changed the whole will of God for him, and he's back in Chicago rather than going to Cincinnati. When he walked through the door, I said, but we gave you a cake. What is up with this? But Jay was telling me that before he left his company here in uh, Chicago, he wrote a letter to some of the employees that he worked with, sharing the gospel with them, opening the door for further conversation, hoping that this would plant seeds, water seeds, or maybe even lead to the harvest and leading someone into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. He took that risk. He took, he took that risk. We need to be evangelizing now more than ever. And I'm going to tell you that people are listening. Don't be, don't be discouraged if you think that the world is telling you nobody's listening. People are listening. They need a hope greater than themselves. I'd like to read a warning, if I may. I see this as a warning that you would see on the side of a uh, medical prescription. A warning for our church and for all of us. And I felt it was too good not to read to you. And it's by Greg Loring. He says to us, here is your choice, church. Evangelize or fossilize. If you are not doing something with the gospel... If you are just hoarding your spiritual blessings, you are going to stagnate as a Christian. You need an outlet. That is why Jesus commanded all of us to go out. It is not for simply an elite few. It is for every one of you listening 
to this message right now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. God wants to use you to share the gospel. He wants to use you to bring people into the kingdom. He wants to use you to disciple people in their faith and then do it again and again and again. That is how we are going to reach the world. That is how we are going to change the world forever. What a warning that is. We have a choice. At our 20th anniversary, if we're not going to evangelize, we're going to fossilize as a church. And I tell you, now is the day. Today is the day of salvation. The Spirit actively involved in the beginning of the church is actively involved in the church today if we will allow Him to do what He wants to do. We just need to be faithful. But I don't know enough. You know enough to tell someone your story and how you came to Christ. But what if they ask me a very tough question? You have the God of all the universe that you can go back to. You have the word of God that you can search out for yourself to find that answer for them and to give it to them in a further conversation. There's nothing wrong with saying, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but let me get back to you on it. Nobody's going to be opposed to that. And hopefully that'll lead to another question and another question, etc., etc. But let us be faithful in the proclamation. And let's allow God to be responsible for the response of those who hear our proclamation of the gospel to them. Let us be aware, the good news is only good news if they first truly understand the bad that precedes it.